0: morning is the Feast of Weeks from Passover to Pentecost, the Feast of Weeks from Passover to Pentecost. Let me begin by saying this, we've dedicated ourselves to studying the Old Testament, here in particular the book of Deuteronomy, because it is the foundation on which the New Testament is written. From Genesis to Revelation, It is not more or less inspired, we believe, in the inspiration of all the books that we consider to be the Bible. From first to last, beginning to end, we believe that from Genesis to Revelation is God's Word, authoritative, reliable, and trustworthy. It promises us success in this life and eternal life in the next. Jesus said it this way, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Amen. But one of the things that we're learning in this process is that although the Old and New Testaments are equally the Word of God and therefore our book, say our book, our there are things that are concealed in the Old That are revealed in the new. In other words, in the Old Testament, we see shadows of things to come. And in the New Testament, we see the flesh and bone. And so as we continue our study in Deuteronomy chapter 16 this morning, having looked at the Passover last week, this week we continue, to the Feast of Weeks from Passover Pentecost our three points will similarly be like that of last week the origin the practice and the fulfillment so without further ado if you're ready say amen. amen we'll look at our first of three this morning it's origin its origin going back to chapter 16 verse 9 you shall count seven weeks begin to count the seven weeks from the time the sickle is first put to the standing grain then you shall keep the feast of weeks to the Lord your God with the tribute of a freewill offering from your land, which you shall give as the Lord your God blesses you. When it comes to the origin of the Feast of Weeks, I have to say it's a bit less romantic than the origin of the Passover. Passover is steeped in historical events, amen? Amen. Passover is steeped in that wonderful deliverance and judgment of God's people from Egypt. The Feast of Weeks, however, is far more mundane. It comes after. That's kind of the origin. You count a few days, that's where the Feast of Weeks is. But it's connected, and that's something that we can't neglect to observe. And what I mean by that is this. Passover was to be celebrated, which was followed by the Days of Unleavened Bread... But seven weeks later, the Feast of Weeks is to be celebrated. The two are connected. In fact, that's exactly why it's called the Feast of Weeks. The Scripture tells us because it's seven weeks from Passover. And in fact, it later became known as Pentecost because when the Hebrew Old Testament was translated into the Greek Old Testament, it was called the Septuagint, Leviticus chapter 23, verse 16, talks about Pentecost, 50 days from Passover. And the word for 50 in Greek is Pentecost. Leviticus chapter 23, verse 16 says, You shall count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. And when the Hebrew Old Testament was translated into the Greek, that word Pentecost was used, and from that time moving forward, that word pentecost stuck we see it mentioned as early however as exodus chapter 34 in exodus chapter 34 god is reminding the people reiterating if you will to the people his law and his expectations of them as it regards that law and as he was going over that covenant law with his people he says in exodus chapter 34 and i quote you shall observe the feast Of weeks. So we have the origin settled as well as its timing, but what about its practice? Its origin and its timing is there. It's clear. No, it's not as romantic, but it is clear. Our second point, therefore, is its practice. Going back to the text that we have looked at already, I want to observe three things that we can see in this text Deuteronomy chapter 16 verses 9 and following so let's discuss its practice and how it was to be carried out first it was to include a free will offering in regards to its practice it was to include a free will offering now a free will offering is an offering that is brought by the people of their own choice rather than an offering stipulated by the law itself Let me say that again. A free will offering is exactly what it sounds like. It's an offering that's brought by the people of their own will, of their own volition, rather than an offering that is stipulated by the law itself. For example, in the law, God would say, bring a lamb without spot, without blemish. If you cannot afford a lamb without spot or blemish, then bring a gift of two turtle doves. Interestingly enough... That is the offering that is made for Jesus, which seems to suggest that his family was not all that well off. So God had stipulations in his word for the standard expectation, but also the expectation of those who are required to participate, but were not as financially successful as other participants. In this case, we're not talking about required Offerings, but free will offerings. Look at the text again, if you would please. It says, You shall count seven weeks, begin to count the seven weeks from the time the sickle is first put to the standing grain. Here it is. Then you shall keep the feast of weeks to the Lord your God with the tribute of a free will offering. And where does this free will offering come from, church? Your hand. It comes from your hand, which you shall give. As the Lord your God blesses you. In other words, the relationship between God's blessing in your life and this free will offering is related. There's a positive correlation here. I think that's something that you and I need to take note of. But in addition to that, Deuteronomy chapter 16, verses 16 and 17, just a couple of verses down in our chapter, it says three times a year all your males shall appear before the Lord your God at the place that he will choose. That's a repetitive theme through these verses that we've been reading. At the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which we discussed last week. At the Feast of Weeks, which is the study we are currently engaged in, and at the Feast of Booths, which we will discuss next week. Now get this. They shall not appear before the Lord. How? Empty-handed. Every man and woman shall give as he is able, or as she is able, according to the blessing of the Lord your God, that he has given. Church, let's camp out here for just a quick moment and acknowledge what is conspicuous. God does not expect his people to come before him in worship with empty hands. We should come before the Lord and worship with something in our hands. It's something that correlates to the blessing that he's placed in our lives. Now, let's pivot for a second and ask ourselves this question. How has God blessed me? How has God blessed me? How has God blessed me? Now that we've pivoted and asked this question, let's ask a follow up question. In view of how God has blessed me, how do I offer to Him my sacrifices? Do my sacrifices reflect His blessing? Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits. What the psalmist was saying in Psalm 103 is the exact same thing that we are supposed to glean from this passage, namely perspective, in view of what God has done in our lives. How do we give to him? The church is not a club. You don't come here and say, how big is the coffee bar? How big is the cafe? What, what are they offering? What classes are they off? What about this? What about that? This is not a club. You don't come here and give us something because you're gaining something in return. You come as a member participant, a family member. That's why we have a covenant membership. When you come here, you make a pact. I'm going to pray for my pastor. I'm going to pray for the people here. I am in covenant with you in regards to the faith in this book. And yes, part of my family resemblance, and participation will be financial offerings because that's biblical. That's biblical. Now, if you come every single week and you take, but you do not give, Paul asks in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 11, is it a big thing if we reap material things after having sown spiritual things? In other words, church, what I want to say to you is this. Many of you are dealing with the challenges that you're dealing with because you don't believe that the spiritual things are more important than the material things, and you're wrong. In John chapter 4, Jesus says God is spirit. Now here's the question. If God is spirit and we are three-dimensional, who's more real? We're confined to this slave-like life that we live in while God is free and not possessed inside a body. So when he introduces himself to Moses, he says, I am, that's as good as I can do. He uses the verb to be in Hebrew and tells tells Moses, when the people say, what's his name? We want a verification process here. We want to vet this God. Moses is to tell them, he is the God who always has been and always will be. In view of who God is, in view of what God has done, in view of how God has blessed you, should you come to him in worship with empty hands. Now, what you bring is entirely up to you. I'm not judging what you bring. I'm just judging that you bring. Amen? Amen? The reality of the matter is, what you bring to God is entirely between you and God. I have no idea who gives. I have no idea who gives what. That's taken care of by a finance team. But what I do know is what is required in this book of you, of me, of a church family that identifies with Christ, and that is this. We must give to the God who gave it all. So you see first of all we learn in regards to its practice the feast of weeks requires a free will offering give what you will but by the love of god give second it was to include worship with family and friends look again at the text it says in verse 11 and you shall rejoice what's the word Oh, no, 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 no. Sometimes you can get away with a difficult one and they go, maybe that's the one. No, you can't rob me of rejoice. You shall what? Rejoice. 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 No, rejoice. Rejoice. The word that's in the core of that word is joy. And you know when you see somebody who has joy, you can't contain them. You're like, sit down. Yeah, they won't sit down. Be quiet. You can't get them to be quiet because they have joy. Oh, it's such a bad testimony to see a Christian without the joy of the Lord. And everything in life is an issue. Everything in life is a trial. Everything in life is a reason for despondency and depression. Oh, Spend some time rejoicing. Secondly, the Feast of Weeks says, You shall rejoice. What's the word? Rejoice. You shall rejoice before the Lord, your God, who you and your son and your daughter and your male servant. In other words, it goes down the list just in case they might think, you know, I'm going to church, but nobody else is allowed to go. No, no, no. God says, when the Feast of Weeks takes place and when the time of rejoicing comes, everybody's got the day off because I'm that important. When it comes to God, church, everything stops. When it comes to God, we worship him with our family and our friends. You shall rejoice, the scriptures say. Now, a good question to follow up to this idea, this second sub-point under its practice might be, okay, so we've said rejoice really loud. You've made me uncomfortable. I don't like to be loud in church. What does rejoice mean? When the Bible says rejoice... What does it mean? It's a wonderful question, a reflection of how intelligent our church is. Let me answer it for you. You might want to write some of these points down. Number one, if we are to take rejoice, as it's described here in Deuteronomy 6, at face value, then it means a handful of things. Number one, it would include shouts of praise. Amen! Shouts of praise! So, so... Psalm 20 verse 5 says, may we shout for joy over your salvation. May we shout for joy over your salvation. Now, I know some of you were born and and you were raised on the Bible and you went through adolescence on the Bible and you went through young adulthood on the Bible and now you're an adult in the Bible and you've only sinned like twice in your whole life. So this won't apply to you but for the rest of us sinners who are redeemed by the grace of God. Amen? Shouts of joy. Shouts of joy mean something. When we shout for joy, we're not shouting for joy of how amazing we are, but how amazing his salvation is. Now, now, free will offering, right? First sub-point, free will offering. It's, it's what we're giving. Secondly, we're worshiping. with faith. If it is a correlation between what God has done for us and the rejoicing that we're doing, are we mumbling this rejoicing? Or are we mumbling this shout? Or are we saying, God, no one is like you. And no one has done in my life what you have done. And I know it. That's what I'm saying. Not that you're curious, not that you're wondering, but that you know and that everybody around you knows that you have a relationship with the God who saves. And sometimes, you know, we're Baptists. You know, our Pentecostal cousins put us to shame on this regard. And I think sometimes in the doctrine of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, we're so afraid that somebody's going to roll down our aisle or stand up and start mumbling in some false language that's not reflected by biblical accuracy. Let me tell you something. I'm your pastor. You don't need to fret about that. If that happens, I'll handle it. Don't be quiet because of somebody else's foolishness. You owe your God praise. Well, I don't want somebody to think something of me. Let them think. Your God wants you to shout for joy. Your God wants you to demonstrate to Him from your head and your heart if you really believe what you say you believe. Secondly, it includes musical instruments. Psalm 150, verses 3, 4, and 5. Praise him with trumpet sound. Praise him with lute and harp. Praise him with tambourine and dance. Dance. That's got to be a bad translation. Praise him with strings and pipe. Praise him with sounding cymbals. Praise him with loud clashing symbols oh we've got conflicts like crazy in this verse don't we well we'll start from the bottom and work our way up it's too loud oh no the scripture says it needs to be loud it needs to be loud because we're not whispering joy what are we doing we're shouting joy We're shouting joy. We're clashing cymbals. Now, I understand we're not at a concert, but there needs to be volume. There needs to be instruments to give the people of God something with which to sing in harmony to the praise of his name, and it brings him joy. It brings God joy when his people sing his praises. By the way, there is no special Christian music. Music is sanctified and made Christian by the lyrical content. So there may be different instruments, there may be more, there may be less, but one thing we can say is that music is not Christian unless the lyrical content honors Christ. I want to say something about dancing, too. We don't dance on this campus. And that's mainly because people lack inhibitions. We have rules in place to protect people from being who they are. That sounds ugly, doesn't it? I don't mean it in an ugly way, but what I mean is this. The reason people don't associate Baptists with dancing is because they don't want people having a function on their campus and dancing in an inappropriate manner. So they say, this is a church and a house of worship, not a banquet hall we don't do dancing here but dancing is not a sin dancing is biblical you know dancing is biblical and some of you i know you have a conflict between the way you were raised and the spirit of god because you get the one leg going and i see the wrestling within you and sometimes you get both legs going and you're like stop 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 right now that's too much holy ghost But friends, how can you put your hands in your pocket and sit down in view of his salvation? Sometimes you just got to dance for the Lord. Thirdly, it includes clapping. Now in the Hebrew, it says two and four, not on one and two. Now, our, our Brazilian connection back here, my sister Noemia and everybody back there is laughing because they know. My Brazilian connection back here, they clap on the rigatone beat, but we're supposed to clap on the two and four, so sometimes we get going and nobody claps because like, I don't know which one to clap on. Everybody's clapping. Then just keep going. Okay. But... I make, a, I make a joke, but here's the reality of the matter. Clapping is biblical. Listen, clap your hands, all the peoples. Psalm 47, 1. Clap your hands. Clap your hands to the Lord. This is part of worship. Fourthly, it includes raising of hands. Psalm 63, verse 4. I will bless you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift my hands. Amen. Now you might ask me, Joe, do you, do you have a problem with people who, who lift their hands in worship? And I would say, absolutely not. Do you, have a plan? do you have a problem if I raise my hands in worship? Absolutely not, but just make sure your hands are clean. The scripture says, who may ascend the holy hill of the Lord? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. It isn't an issue of whether or not you raise your hands. It's an issue of the disposition of your life. There are a lot of people who are comfortable dancing and being loud and raising their hands. But they're not holy. They don't love Jesus the way that they should love Jesus. They're just extroverted people. And what I'm here to tell you this morning is that when the free will offerings come, are you going to fall back on your personality or are you going to offer God what he deserves? I was happy to hear the singing this morning. Sometimes you're quieter than usual. It's summer, and we have a lot of people out. But the reality of the matter is, is there is nothing more powerful than God's people singing. I can't tell you how many times Dymie has done something wrong, and it's made me mad. And I've come to church, and then I'm less mad after we sing. That was a joke, by the way. She's, we had a small family emergency this morning, so Dymie and Sarah are not here, so she'll, she'll probably ride me about that later. But... My point at that failed joke was this. Something magical happens when you sing praises. Doesn't matter what you bring in, it dissipates when you sing praises to God. Third, and finally, it was to include memory. It was to include memory, the offering, the worship with family and friends, and finally, memory. May the Lord help us to never forget what he's done for us. I don't know about you, but when I read this verse 12, you shall remember that you were. I was, yes, you were. I was, yes, you were. Was I really? Yes, you were. Right? Oh, we get—we become such good Christians. I'm throwing air quotations up now. We, we become such good Christians that we sanctify the past. I wasn't really that bad. Yeah, you were. Yeah, you were. May God help us to never forget what he has done for us. The farther removed from our conversion we become, the more stale we become sometimes. I know you guys have met those new Christians, the young Christians they're intolerable, right? Did you know there's a gospel of John? Did you know that Jesus says, I'm the bread of life? They're into- Everything is new to them, and they're so excited about it. They're like, have you read this book? Yes, dude, a lot. no, no. No. Have you read this book? And it's because of the newness and the excitement of the fact that their salvation is from what they knew they were. But there's something different now. They are something different now. They weren't gods, and now they are. They were dead, and now they are alive. They were living in darkness, and now they are children of light. And we forget when we are so far removed from our conversion how special it is to be an adopted child of God. And we can't forget, church. We can't forget. We can't afford to forget. He's called us to push back darkness and live as stars shining bright in a dark world. That's Paul in Philippians 2. And far be it from us that the farther we are from our conversion the staler we become. Let's challenge each other to think more like this. Rather than the farther I get from my conversion, the staler I become, the closer I get to glory, the more excited I become. Let's stop worrying about yesterday so much, what happened, who we were. Listen, if you're forgiven, you're forgiven. We all have our wrestling matches. Sometimes it's flesh against spirit, and that's all you've got is the wrestle. But my question is, are you wrestling? Are you excited about redemption? This is what we're talking about. Don't forget what God has done for you. The Feast of Weeks or Pentecost is... Really known for its celebration, the day of first fruits. And you know you can kind of surmise what first fruits suggest. First fruits is when that sickle would go to the first fruits that were offering themselves, because those first fruits would project what the year of harvest would be like. And if God gave them abundant rains of blessing and those first fruits came, and oh man, they knew they were gonna have a good year. Nothing wrong with having a good year, church. Nothing wrong with being successful. Nothing wrong with working hard and being rewarded accordingly. There's nothing wrong with helping each other achieve success. God's blessing falls richly upon all, and the scriptures say he will never allow the righteous to stumble. God's blessing upon his people is an important aspect of this first fruits. And we see that picture and it's fulfillment, which is our third and final point today. It's fulfillment. Now, for this point, let's leave Deuteronomy and let's go to the New Testament as has been our practice over the fulfillment aspects, and let's go to the book of Acts. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. If you're cheating and using an app, just put your little cursor in the search window. A-C-T-S. Just kidding. Acts chapter 2. I'll give you a moment to get there. Acts chapter 2. We're looking at the fulfillment of the Feast of Weeks, or as it is referred to, Pentecost. And in Acts chapter 2, verse 1, I think you will very quickly see the correlation When the day of Pentecost arrived, they, that is to say the disciples and the followers of Jesus, were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And... Divided tongues as of fire. Now it doesn't say tongues came down. It says it was like tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them and they were all filled. What's the word? Filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now There were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. Around the world, they had come to Jerusalem for the feasts. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these... Who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language—Parthians and Medes, Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, excuse me, and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Livia belonging to Crete. Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans, and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others mocked, and they said, They're filled with new wine. Now, there's a couple of things that are happening here that are worth noting. Let me give you a little bit of historical context in the event that your history might be a little rusty. We're looking at the fulfillment. We're in Acts chapter 2. It's the day of Pentecost. Now, for that, essentially what we need to know is the context. Jesus has been crucified, buried resurrected, and spent 40 days with his disciples, after which he ascended into heaven, and he is sitting at the right hand of God. That's what's happening here. That has taken place. That event has concluded. Now it's just the disciples of Jesus sitting all together in one particular place, and while they are there, obviously at a place that is in proximity to the temple, The Spirit of God comes upon them in such a way that they are filled and given a capability that otherwise they would not possess. The final seal or the guarantee is going to be the work of God the Holy Spirit in the lives of his people publicly. And that is what is going to help everyone know that Jesus was God's Son. So that's the lead-in to Acts chapter 2. The apostles are near the temple. The crowds are gathering. They begin to preach, but not just preach. They are preaching in languages they do not know, and the foreigners are hearing in the languages that they do. A couple of things to note. First, this was a supernatural event. Number one, this was a supernatural event. It wasn't just another feast of weeks. This was something extraordinary. This is something that God was doing above and beyond everything that had been done in the past, something that God himself was doing in the context of a feast that was known for acknowledging first fruits. I think what... God is showing us here is that this was something that he was doing, but there were so many other things that would be done. This was foreshadowing. All the wonderful works that God was about to do through his apostles, not just saving sinners, both Jew and Gentile, through his son, but performing miracles of healing and even raising the dead. To get the message out, the apostles were speaking in tongues. Now, as we go through this text, we see the word tongues. It is the Greek word "glossolalia." It's a plural from "glossa," and it means languages. It means discernible, learnable, spoken languages. It never is translated to mean something that is uninterpretable. In fact, Paul goes so far to say to the Corinthian church, if someone, in speak, someone stands up and speaks in tongues, there must be interpreters present. The reality of the matter is some of you have been invited to churches of other Christian friends that you know, and they're like, hey, why don't you come to your church? You're like, oh, I'm scared to go to that church because if I'm there and somebody stands up and starts blasting off some kind of sound and they go, this is what God told me through a tongue... I'll be uncomfortable, and I won't know what to do. I've got news for you. I would be uncomfortable, too, because that's not biblical. Biblical tongues is not a language that is unknown. It is a language that is unknown to the speaker. But it is known around the world. In fact, this is such a point that Luke, the author of Acts, wants to make that he not only uses the word glossolalia, known languages, but later he uses the word dialectos, which is the word we get dialect from. And that is what is said when they say, we are hearing them in our native language So not only are they speaking in a language that they do not know, but they are speaking it even according to the dialects. People from all around the world are hearing for the first time the gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news of what God has done. And the apostles are being empowered by God the Holy Spirit to preach to them in this way. New Testament scholar F.F. Bruce writes this, Not only are the speaker's words partially or completely beyond their conscious control, but they are uttered in languages of which they have no command in normal circumstances. In other words, they didn't take 101 and 201 and 301 of these languages. They have no familiarity with these languages. This is a supernatural event. But not only was it a supernatural event, secondly, it was also a prophetic event. Not only was it a supernatural event, but it was also a prophetic event. Peter is filled with the Spirit, and now this is something that happened from time to time in the book of Acts. We see that it says the apostles were filled with the Holy Spirit. Later in the book of Acts, Peter again will be filled with the Spirit when Stephen is martyred. He is filled with the Spirit. This is something that we are called and commanded to be. We are called to be filled with the Spirit. We are called to be filled with the Spirit. But being filled with the Spirit is distinguished from being baptized in the Spirit, Being baptized in the Spirit is an initiatory rite. It's something that God does. When you are converted at conversion, it is because the Spirit of God has baptized you and regenerated you, and you place faith in Christ as your Savior. Every single Christian is baptized in God the Holy Spirit. That is not something that the Bible teaches happens later or in degrees Bethel Church teaches that. Other charismatic uh, movements teach that. But that's not biblical. There are no baptisms in the Spirit in the New Testament like that. Every single Christian is baptized by the Spirit. But not every Christian is filled by the Spirit. And this is where the distinction happens. Not only between the two but between what filled with the Spirit actually means. To be filled with the Spirit, church, means to be empowered by the Spirit. It means to be full of his word, and it means to be Christ-centered. So to be baptized with the Spirit and to be filled with the Spirit are not the same thing, but if I can take a somewhat complicated theological idea and simplify it in a sentence, I'll give it to you like this. You can't be filled with the Spirit if you're full of yourself. You can't be filled with the Spirit if you're full of something else. Paul says, Don't be full of wine, where is excess or debauchery, but be filled, help me out, with the Spirit which indicates very clearly that if you're going down one path, you're not going to go down the other path. The mode in which we live our lives disposes us to the work of God in our lives. And that doesn't mean we are saved, aren't saved from Monday to Tuesday. That's not what what we're talking about is the power with which we live our lives. In this case, it is not only a supernatural event, but it's a prophetic event. These men are filled with the Spirit, and when they are filled with the Spirit, look at what... Peter says in chapter 2, verse 14. Peter, standing with the 11. Matthias has been added at this point. You remember that Judas Iscariot, who betrayed our Lord, he hung himself. He commits suicide. They replace him with Matthias. Peter is there with the 11. They are back to 12 in number lifted up his voice, and he addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words, for these people are not drunk as you think, since it's only the third hour of the day. It's nine o'clock in the morning, a a little early to be loaded. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams." This was a prophetic event, and it was a prophetic event, not only in regards to the Feast of Weeks coming to its fulfillment, but in what the prophets like Joel or Joel, whichever you prefer, spoke by the word of the Lord that God was going to pour out his spirit in such a way that it had never been done before, both male and male. And female, he says, sons and daughters will prophesy, and this won't just be happening among the young, it'll be happening among the older too. So Peter starts preaching about Jesus, his death, burial, and resurrection, and he sums it up in chapter 2, verse 36. Go down just a little farther, and he says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain. That God has made him, that is Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. That's the, that's the climax or the zenith of this message. He quotes scripture, he's full of the Spirit, and God is using him to preach this message in a variety of languages. Everybody's hearing it, and he sums it up by saying it's about Jesus, 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 Verse 37 says, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And Peter and the rest of the apostles, they asked, brothers, what shall we do? And they said, repent and be baptized. Oh, did you get that? There's another plug for baptism. Repent and be baptized. Repent and be baptized. We believe in believer's baptism. In other words, believers demonstrate to the world and to other believers that they have placed their faith in Christ, died to the old way of life, and been risen by God to live the new one that he's given them. If you haven't been baptized, you've got to get baptized. It's an amazing moment, not because something special happens, but because there is a blessing, I believe, imparted to the people who obey God's word. Repent and be baptized. So thirdly, under this idea of fulfillment, it's not only a supernatural event, it's not only a prophetic event, but finally we see that it's an event that leads to a revival. It leads to a revival. Jumping down to chapter 2, verse 41. What are we going to do? He says, repent and be baptized. And verse 41 says, so those who received his word that is believed in the gospel they were what they were baptized i'm going to do it again if you haven't been baptized (laughs) so those who received his word were baptized they received the word they believed the gospel and they were baptized they received the word and they were baptized there's a chronology here they believed and then they were baptized and there were added that day about 3000 souls 3000 souls it's quite an event first time out of the gates peter's like batting a thousand he's like oh, "good I'm not bad at this 3000 convert to christ after his first sermon. To close, let me say this. While God has done some remarkable things in the past, and while God reminds us to remember and not to forget those things that he has done, church, say amen if you're listening. Our God is still at work in the present. He's still healing. He's still saving He's still delivering. He's still releasing. He's still breaking bondage chains. He's still enlightening. He's still making wise. He's still helping, guiding, and blessing. Let's not look at what God used to do and go, Oh, man, if only we lived in the old days. I love what God says in Isaiah 48. He says, Don't look at the old days. I'm going to do something new. We've got to remember this, church. Not 48, 43, 18. We've got to remember that the things that God did in the past might impress us, but God has not changed. He's not tired. What he did in the past, he can do again. He can do greater things, and he can still do the wonders of old in the present. Do you believe it? That's what I'm talking about. It's not about whether I believe it or whether somebody else believes it, but whether you believe it. That's what the free will offering is all about. That's what the Pentecost was all about. Bring some gifts. Which gifts? Whatever gifts you think you should bring in view of how God has blessed you.